So this is our Simon Don reading group, continuing our reading of Individuation, Volume 2, uh, on the text History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, we're picking up from page 608 of the PDF, um, the section on Montesquieu. Uh, so last time we finished the very long section on Rousseau, and then we saw that there's a little sort of transition section about the 18th century and uh, sort of a general picture of the 18th century. Um, and so he talks about um, a few of the different, I guess, philosophical schools or traditions that were um, active in the 18th century. Uh, but he um, um, looks at, I think, the uh, uh, individualism that is sort of characteristic of um, moral and political philosophy of a lot of these writers in the 18th century. Uh, and so there's um, this idea that society is essentially composed of um, atomic individuals. So the individual is uh, ontologically or, or logically prior um, or more fundamental than uh, the social order in which they're incorporated. And then society is essentially um, an aggregate of individuals. And uh, there's also this sort of um, one of the, I guess, consequences of this individualism is the uh, theory of enlightened despotism. So the idea that the sort of uh, ideal order for a society is one in which you have um, a, an enlightened despot, um, a ruler who uh, has a, a philosophical understanding of human nature and of the ideal society, and then sort of works to realize that ideal. Uh, and uh, so this this is the ideal of uh, some of the enlightenment authors of the 18th century. Uh, they they um, sort of propose this model as being the way to uh, realize enlightenment ideas. Uh, and um, the idea uh, of this enlightened despotism sort of leads to uh, a kind of universal um, uh, regulation of society. So every aspect, nothing in society should be left to chance. Uh, everything should be regulated and, and uh, ordered in such a way as to promote the uh, the general interest of society. Um, and and so it's it's sort of uh, paradoxical, I guess, that this um, position that starts from the individual as being the fundamental reality ends up with a, a social order in which the individual is completely subordinated to the general regulation of that society. Uh, so individuals um, would be sort of assigned to particular tasks and uh, uh, everything would be sort of uh, ordained from uh, the the summit of the society in the enlightened despot. Uh, and then he also mentions just sort of in passing um, the idea of um, uh, static and dynamic equilibrium in um, analyses of, of society and the development of societies. And he suggests that, um, that um, most of these authors of the enlightenment think of society in terms of a static equilibrium. So it, it's, it's a, a state that is supposed to stay the same. And the, the sort of general problem of political uh, theory is to um, figure out what sort of arrangement is uh, most stable and, and would prevent um, changes. Uh, whereas a, a dynamic approach to social order would be one in which um, you, you want to, the problem is to um, figure out what kind of social order has um, the capacity to transform itself. And um, this is something that is only really developed in the 19th century with the idea of progress as one of the 
uh, sort of central principles of social order. Uh, so uh, a society is good or is well-ordered insofar as it uh, allows for progress. Uh, and so this um, sort of dynamic conception of social order is uh, only, uh, so Simon Don attributes it to Vico. He says perhaps um, Vico has this sort of dynamic conception of social order, but he thinks that in the 18th century, most authors are, are still using this uh, static conception of social order instead. Uh, so that section is a sort of preview of um, of what we see in the next few sections. So he does a sort of um, a quick tour of some of the 18th century authors uh, and their uh, social theories and, and how the individual fits into those theories. So that's what we'll see um, probably today and maybe next week as well. Um, okay, so let's start reading. If someone else would like to read from the Montesquieu heading. Yeah, I can read. Montesquieu. At the time, in the time of Montesquieu, the representation of the individual that coincides with this static social equi- social static equilibrium is quite similar to the representation Descartes elaborated. Man is free due to intelligence, not because of his alleged independence relative to the order of creatures submitted to fixed laws. Quote, as an intelligent being, he incessantly violates the laws that God established and incessantly changes those that he himself establishes. The laws God has made are themselves this way, quote, because they have some relationship with his wisdom and his power, unquote. The necessity that guides man is a sort of necessity of convenience. Uh, This necessity is discovered based on the man who searches through calculation and reflection for the laws that are the best in a given historical situation. Legislation is therefore like mechanical combinations, which an inventor knows how to discover and institute. These combinations are regulated by the eternal laws of movement, and yet they wait for the inventor to realize them. Such is the role of the individual, the being who is capable of invention, the being in whom freedom, human freedom is revealed essentially. The problem to be resolved is the same for legislation as for a mechanical combination. It is that of maximum effect. As with Descartes, Malbranche, and Leibniz, here we come upon the search for this parameter that is information and that can characterize a political system as a mechanical system. The individual as inventor is an operator of information. Montesquieu compares the various political systems according to this larger or smaller quantity of information, which is also a greater or lesser degree of freedom. There is a minimum of freedom when public powers act in a completely arbitrary and unregulated way. Each of these powers must therefore be limited and controlled by a force that balances them out. The force that is opposed to the arbitrariness of a public power must be homogeneous with it, must be another public power. Consequently, there will be political freedom when the homogeneous powers will balance each other mutually. This search for the condition of the highest degree of information for a social static equilibrium leads to the discovery of principles like those that define monarchy. Quote, in monarchies, policy affects great things with as little virtue as possible. Uh, Thus, in the nicest machines, art has reduced the number of movements, springs, and wheels, unquote. The general principle is the following, quote, to form a moderate government, it is necessary to combine the several powers, combine the several powers, to regulate, temper, and set them in motion, to give, as it were, ballast to one in order to enable it to counterpoise the other. This is a masterpiece of legislation rarely produced by chance, unquote. Montesquieu even foresaw the existence of a principle of degradation in opposition to the realization of 
a very high degree of perfection in the in the informed system. Mechanics indeed has its frictions, uh, which sorry, quote this is a quote. Mechanics indeed has its frictions, which often change or arrest the effects of the theory. Politics also has its own frictions. Unquote. The individual's essential role in politics is therefore to comprehend, so as to be able to invent. Yeah, this is this is an interesting way to talk about Montesquieu. Um, I read a little bit of Montesquieu in grad school just because it's you know relevant to constitutional issues. Obviously, he was very influential thinker on the uh, framers of the American Constitution, the doctrine of separation of powers. Um, but this framing it in terms of invention and information, it seems like he's saying that the information is the creation of the political system through kind of the study of these uh, laws that are like mechanical laws. Does that sound right? I think that's, I think that's pretty much right. Um, yeah, so we saw um, with uh, Simondon's analysis of Descartes that um, in that, so in that passage, um, he talks about how the uh, Descartes' argument for the existence of God is that um, I have the idea of a perfect being within me, uh, and this idea um, contains more reality than I, as a as a finite, imperfect being, uh, can produce. Uh, and so this idea has to be produced in me by a, per- uh, a perfect being, namely God. Uh, and Simondo analyzes this argument in terms of information. So he, he, he says this... Um, this idea of the perfect being is a, or this idea of a, a being that contains all reality um, uh, has contains more information or, or has this high information content. Um, and uh, it's because of this information content that um, the, um, the idea sort of surpasses my capacities as a finite being. Um, and then, so here in this text or, or in this um, section on Malbranche or, or sorry, on uh, Montesquieu, um, he um, he analyzes the creation of political systems in similar terms uh, as um, as a a work of information and um, the so the the question is um, how can you sort of assemble political powers or political principles in such a way that the uh, information content is not lost over time um, as a result of these uh, frictions or um, I guess sort of historical contingencies that that put stress on a political system um, and um, and so this is a, a work of invention in the sense that uh, you have to sort of analyze the nature of political systems and these mechanical laws that govern them and use that knowledge to uh, assemble these uh, elements or, or principles or, or political powers in such a way that the system is uh, self-sustaining and, and doesn't uh, degrade over time. Uh, so I think that's, um, so this is still uh, in, in the terms of the uh, transition piece that, that we just talked about. It, it's still uh, a kind of static equilibrium, but it's one in which um, the uh, mechanical laws of transformation of political systems are, are sort of um, incorporated into the understanding of um, of the the static uh, equilibrium that is the goal of political uh, invention. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it does. Like, it's it's obviously not progressive in the sense or dynamic in the sense in which you were just discussing. You know, in relation to Vico, but it does seem like it's not uh, like in a state of equilibrium in which all of the 
potential has been exhausted because it it seems like the like the stasis is kind of maintained by the tension between the different branches which hold each other in check, which I guess could be seen as a kind of uh, potential energy. Yeah, so like in the functioning of a machine, uh, if it's say a, a pulley um, that you use to to lift a weight or or uh, whatever exactly the machine is, it has um, there are certain forces that act within the functioning of that machine. So you use um, the the force, uh, the gravitational force that pulls a weight down on one end to lift a weight on the other end, for example. Um, so you uh, there's a, a sort of complex interaction of the the forces that act on the different parts of the, the machine, and I think that's sort of the the model here is that um, you have all these different political forces that are sort of acting on each other in various ways, and the the art of the inventor is to um, put those forces into connection in such a way that the whole thing um, remains stable uh, and um, so the the potentials here, the, or the the role of potential in this model, I think, is um, uh, prior to the invention or prior to the act of the legislator. Um, so there's uh, the potential lies sort of in the um, in the p- political elements themselves and the the, the various laws that govern their uh, interaction, and then. Uh, out of that potential, the legislator um, sort of assembles this complex machine, and um, then that machine is meant to be stable as long as, as long as possible. Um, and I think, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know Montesquieu very well, but I think the the idea is, is to sort of preserve the stability of that machine and not to have any sort of um, development or capacity for transformation built into the machine itself. So I think the potential. Um, comes before the legislator sets up the political machine and, and not after the machine is already um, uh, established. And that's why you have to have a bunch of unelected uh, wizards who just make the country's laws on their own. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's sort of the, um, you know, the division of powers um, uh, principle. Principle is that um, by, by, you know, dividing political power among these different... Um, uh, wizards, you um, you know, balance them against each other, and and that sort of leads to um, the stability that you desire. But the, um, and and you can see why this would be, uh, or why a sort of anti-democratic argument would be um, um, sort of uh, in harmony with this way of thinking, because if you if you allow for um, uh, election of officials or or uh, sort of democratic decision making in general then there's no sort of guarantee that these um, different officials will balance each other in the right way. So you could have, um, uh, I don't know, the executive and the legislative branches could sort of um, collude with each other to suppress the judicial branch or whatever, um, some other combination like that. So you, you can have um, all sorts of different, um, like the the relationships between the branches would not be established in, uh, in the way that um, Montesquieu seems to think is the uh, ideal way for preserving the stability of this political order. So, um, thinking about the process process here, uh, I mean, describe like I mean, I, I just like a, I can just think of the process of individuation. Like here, individuals individuals are regarded as a kind of a potential in the process of individual uh, psychic individuation, as far as I understand. And I, I'm wondering if my understanding is right or wrong. And then, secondly, 
I'm wondering how, what exactly information means here. Because always like uh, information like in Simongdom's division theory confusing for me. Uh, mm, what exactly information here means? Yeah, um, those are those are a couple of good questions. Um, I'll start with the, the second one because I think, yeah, information here, um, I think, uh, and it's not 100% clear, but I think Simon Don was using it in his own uh, sort of particular sense uh, as opposed to uh, information as the uh, uh, content of a message that is that can be transmitted. Uh, so the the signal of information is, is what Simon Don uses, the term Simon Don uses to uh, describe the sort of uh, communication theory notion of information. But here he's talking about information um, in, I guess, the ontological sense. So it has to do with um, the capacity of something, of some entity to structure some domain that is unstructured. Uh, and like the, the standard example is his crystallization example, where um, the germ crystal has the capacity to structure the, um, the fluid um, and, and you know crystallize it in, into this uh, uh, realized structure. Uh, and so likewise here, the inventor of a political system or the legislator um, has the capacity to uh, bring about the structuration of the social order. So whereas uh, before the legislator intervenes, there's this sort of uh, chaotic um, you know, uh, social order that has been developed just by chance, and then the legislator comes in and sort of imposes a structure on the social order, uh, and and so this invention of a of a stable social order is um, an act that creates information in the sense that it brings about a structuration of something that was previously unstructured. I think that's the sense of information here. Sounds like the seed of uh, as you, as you uh, said, like a crystallization, like it's like a germ, like a to to generate something new, like. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Well, it, yeah, so um, that's that's sort of the the image that Simondo always has in mind, I think, when he's talking about information. But it's a little bit different here because um, in this case, there's uh, so in the case of the crystal, um, the the germ crystal already contains information in a sort of realized state. So it it already has a certain structure, and then that structure has the capacity to bring about a structuration of a, a previously unstructured domain. Um, whereas in this case, um, there's an act of creation of information, an act of invention on the part of the legislator. So um, it's it's that act um, of creation of information, I think, is what Simondon is interested in in um, in analyzing here. Uh, and and it's it's this sort of creativity of um, producing new information. I think is is sort of the key moment of the, the whole process of of information that Simon Dong uh, tries to highlight and, and uh, separate out from the rest. Yeah, thank you. Right, and then the other question was about um, the, the role of the individual here. Um, and and um, I think, at least the way Simon Dong is depicting it here, um, the, the only true individual in the whole political order is the legislator who actually um, creates that social or, or the, the political order. Um, uh, it's only this person who um, you know, invents the political structure and, uh, you know, thereby is, is producing new information. It's only that person who is truly an individual, whereas everyone else in the social order is just sort of uh, uh, playing a role and, um, uh, you know, has, has their 
um, role that is uh, um, sort of assigned to them and, and counterbalanced by someone else. Um, yeah, like Spinoza, but substance is Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, so um, you just um, yeah, every everyone uh, is sort of playing a role that is assigned by this legislator who comes up with the political system. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. So there's again, I, I mentioned this last time, but in the French text, and I'm not sure if this is Simondon's doing or the editors, but there's a line break here that is not reproduced in the um, English translation. Uh, so this next bit is, a, again, a sort of transition um, or preview of what comes next. So uh, yeah, let's let's just read that um, from in a general way to um, up to the heading Kondiak, if someone else would like to read. Uh, let me read. Uh, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in a general way, Abubul in the second half of the 18th century, the conditions of the philosophical thought define a certain manner of envisioning the problem of the individual that will not be encountered afterward. The rise of the third estate permits the, the individual to fill his force otherwise than in the heroism of a battle in the mysterious drive that leads to the countries of the infidel, or in the discovery of the vast system of thought that incorporates everything a human being can think. In the 17th century, the necessity of the system was for a philosopher the obligation of, for each individual thought to attain the universality of representation and action. In the 18th century, when the country universality is divided, distributed amongst the numerous members of a team. Of a team. This is no longer the era of the founders who discover a method, but that of the realizers who, having divided up uh, uh, the task, cooperate eagerly with the realization and advent of an order. We should also note that this synergy of efforts infinitely easier to realize for an enterprise of destruction than for construction, which always requires a plan for the whole. The effort of critique is cumulative by itself. Richard adds on to Richard, uh, like the progression of the dilapidation uh, dilapidation in an uh, established order, there is no need for a system in order to attack. Method is sufficient. This is why all it took was the resilience of, uh, of the political order and of prejudices to dynamically give coherence to the efforts of all the philosophies of the Enlightenment. The situation of the individual in this effort of, of attack directed against the prejudices and the political order consists in an attitude that does not seek to assume the universality of the vision of the world, nor does it seek to absolutely assume the universality of the individual's place in the world. Those who would wish to do so are qualified as visionaries. This is the attitude of critique and hostility, which, in this open term, realizes a coherence, coherence that lasts for as long as the activity of critique lasts. If the problem of individuality no longer seems to exist for the philosophies of the Enlightenment, just because this problem could only be posed through a total vision of a being, uh, i.e. of the society in which he struggles, against, against which he rises up, and which constitutes the focal point of all these efforts. The center of the system, the point that forms the unity of this attitude, is that there is a given name and an ensemble of social, political, intellectual, affective structures that form a unity of a goal. Unity of the goal. 
that of the thing to be destroyed and the unity of being insofar as the thing to be destroyed exists. There is thus uh, an intellectual hypo hypothetical that conditions the activity of the philosophy of the 18th century, that of the fact that, it's, that it is a state of society, though that uh, though that at the moment in which these beings who are aware of their individuality in life uh, live, life, I don't live, if individuality takes on the, uh, the, the, the life, a live the form of an essentially dynamic being in expansion, that is because this apparently unconditional dynamism was realized by the conditions of intellectual activity in the second half of the 18th century. What is found in the philosophy of the, the Enlightenment is not a refuser of the systematic unity and universality of the reflection, but an implementation of the conditions of thought that were temporarily favorable to a thought that can be unleashed from the reflections aspect of universality. The thought of counter-erosion was like the intellectual Compensation for this lack of university with a contrary lack of universality. It is therefore necessary to comprehend a certain aspect the individualism, individualism of the ancient 18th century as an attitude that expresses exceptional circumstances, whose counterpart is the systematical and opposite attitude. A reflexive study must unite these, these two attitudes, which only pose the complete problems of the individuality in their relation. By contrast, the sociological and or biological thought of the 19th century will again attempt to pose the problem of individuality in its universality, precisely so as to escape from this impasse in which the knowledge of man was engaged in the, in the debate between uh, the court century of enlightenment and the courts and, and the thought of writers like Burke or Georges de Master and Bonald. Right, so this bit, um, because it's a sort of transition and um, preview of what's coming next, it's somewhat abstract um, and um, not 100% clear, I would say. Um, but I think the idea, well, there's a few different points to, um, to bring out of this passage. One is the destructive rule of um, the Enlightenment philosophy. So the only sort of unity that the Enlightenment had was precisely this role of uh, criticism and destruction of the existing social order. And he's thinking primarily here of France. Um, so you have people like Voltaire and Diderot who, um, who were opposed to um, the monarchy and the clergy and sort of um, uh, worked to try to bring about the downfall of that particular social order. And um, so this, what united them was essentially just this critical or destructive function, and there was uh, little or or nothing that united them in terms of a positive vision of um, what the human being is or should be, or what the social order is or should be. Um, so um, it's in this sense that Simon Don describes them, this describes the the Enlightenment philosophers as as uh, having a partial picture of the individual. So they. They only have um, a sort of negative conception of what the individual is not or what the individual should not be. Uh, and they, they don't come up with a, a real um, positive conception of what the individual is. Uh, and uh, we have sort of uh, opposed to the Enlightenment. There are these counter-Enlightenment writers like Burke um, who uh, defend tradition and um, the, the who deny the 
capacity of reason to sort of bring about a, a new social order better than an existing one. Um, and these authors um, are likewise only sort of negative. They they just uh, they deny the capacity of reason to to perform the these uh, improvements on of the social order, um, but they don't really give a, a sort of positive account of what that social order consists in, other than the, a sort of vague notion of tradition. Uh, and so each side of the uh, enlightenment and, and counter enlightenment. Um, they they both have a, a, a partial conception of the individual, a, a merely negative conception of the individual. Uh, and, and so for Simon Dowen, it's only in the 19th century that we get um, a sort of total picture of the individual that doesn't just sort of negatively um, depict one side or the other. And then I think another point worth highlighting here is um, Simon Dowen sort of sketches, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about it, but he, he suggests that this... Um, sort of individual, this negative conception of the individual or this destructive conception of uh, the role of philosophy um, is conditioned by the rise of the third estate in France. Um, and and so the historical circumstance where you have um, a society in which the third estate is politically um, very limited in terms of its power, but uh, in terms of the sort of general social order, the third estate is in increasingly important. Uh, and the so the monarchy is increasingly reliant on uh, the third estate for financial purposes. Um, and um, but then at the same time, the third estate is sort of excluded from the leadership of the political realm. Um, so this sort of tension between the the social importance of the third estate and the political impotence um, is, is sort of the background in which we find um, philosophy having this negative or critical role um, as sort of the, the project or, or unifying principle for philosophy. Uh, and so Simon Dong here, uh, I think we, we've seen a few instances of this type of argument, I think from Simon Dong, where he tries to give a, a social explanation of a particular philosophical uh, position or uh, a sort of general philosophical movement or something like that. Um, and so here he only just sort of sketches it, but I think it's worth um, sort of pointing out that that principle or that form of explanation that he gives here. Definitely, definitely um, this all um, changes like, uh, I mean, the part of like uh, page, page six or one hundred six six hundred eleven something like that, that the first part is like, um, is description of the the changes of the according to the century um, has to do those changes have to do with the historical contextual um, the backgrounds like so only it can be just only like a, we can just think of this kind of changes only limited to the Western societies right like uh, it could be a little bit different like in for example in Asian context or other other historic historically different contexts it could be be different. So what Simon Dong described here is only like uh, what happened in Western society. Like that, that is kind of like the idea, right? Yeah, and he not just Western society, but I think he's specifically thinking of France um, because this is all sort of in relation to the French Revolution, um, um, where um, the French Enlightenment philosophy was part of the ideology of the French Revolution. So a, a lot of the actors of the French Revolution, you know. Um, appealed to the writings of the French Enlightenment uh, authors 
as sort of motivating their actions or justifying their actions. Um, and then likewise, the counter enlightenment, um, these were people, so Burke in particular, you know, wrote a book um, uh, sort of denouncing the French Revolution um, and um, uh, the, the counter enlightenment was in general um, motivated by uh, opposition to the French Revolution uh, and, um, you know, arguing that this was um, unjust or unjustified in, in various ways. And, and so, yeah, there's the, the, the political background that Simon was thinking about is specifically the French one. So definitely in other countries, th this process would have um, happened in different ways or, or there would be different processes happening. Uh, the reason why I ask this, like, uh, uh, in in Simon Dong's individualism theory, I'm I'm uh, always like wondering uh, if the uh, Simon Dong's individualism theory can be universally applied to the all the context in the world or something like that. So kind of like a potential or all kind of like a generate generation ontological generation something like that can be applied to to the uh, all the context. That's what I believe for now, but. Um, yeah, it, that that could be right. I'm, I mean, like uh, at the end of the day, like a uh, Simong Dong uh, generated his own theory based on just all kind of his uh, research, but he, his own idea can be applied to the diverse contexts as well, right? Yeah, I think at least in terms of his um, sort of ideal, what he's trying to do, uh, I don't think he wants to limit his account of individuation to a specific um, social historical context. But I think what the... so. It, if we take a sort of broad view of this whole text on the history of the notion of the individual, um, I think he sees the uh, development of philosophy uh, over the centuries, um, you know, going back to the pre-Socratics and, and you know, we'll see it ends in the early 19th century. Um, this whole history is itself a process of individuation in which the notion of the individual comes to be better and better defined. Um, and, and so, there's a, a process in which the the individual the the notion of the individual is itself um, uh, undergoing a process of individuation, um, and we can think um, you know I, I I my knowledge of uh, like Chinese or Indian philosophy or other philosophical traditions it's pretty limited but um, you could probably do a similar kind of analysis of um, any of those philosophical traditions and and try to see you know what how the, the notion of the individual develops in those philosophical traditions and um, like seeing how those, uh, there's a process of individuation of that notion of the individual in those traditions as well. Um, but yeah, that would be like a whole uh, research project that um, uh, Simon Rowe doesn't, doesn't undertake or, or really um, acknowledge. Yeah, yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah, all of your comment makes me think that how cool it would be if there was like a uh, Simon Don had written a history of the notion of the individual in like Chinese history or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean that would be again a, like a, a whole like life project of you know mastering Chinese philosophy and um, um, being able to analyze its history in that way. Um, that uh, you know, obviously Simon Don Simon Don was educated in the French context where. Um, there's this, uh, you know, tradition of Western philosophy and very little attention to philosophy outside of the Western uh, tradition. Um, but uh, um, yeah, that would be, you know, if if someone who had the the knowledge of of Chinese philosophy or Indian philosophy or any other tradition could, um, you know, try to 
carry out that project. That would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Thank you. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Uh, I think we have a couple of short, uh, well, that's a better page. Yeah, let's read the Contiac section. Um, uh, 61, do you have a, a mic this week or do you want to, to read? Oh, sorry, yeah, I'm here. Um, where where are we in the text? Uh, yeah, so we're on page 611 at the um, heading uh, Contiac. Ah, okay, um, it, it's pronounced Contiac. Okay, all right, I can read. Uh, Kandiak becomes aware of the logical power of the individual being who possesses a veritable manufacturing faculty of ideas and carries out their genesis within himself. Quote, our errors stem from the fact that our ideas are badly made. The only way to correct them is to remake them. Intelligence or reason is not a natural block that its origin must justify by explaining it. It is a sort of building or factory. The whole future of the mind is engaged in this work of reform, of reconstruction by means of philosophical reflection, which will allow it to remake better what was made spontaneously. All truths arrive from the operation of individual intelligence. In the language of calculation, Kondiak does not introduce any definition, any maxim, and produces all the truths of the operation of calculation. Simples come from the senses. These are, quote, the simplest ideas that the senses transmit to us, a sort of inert manner for the mind which will combine them. The development of the mind occurs due to the diversity of the connections established according to utility. In the end, it's a question of, quote, knowing how to form these links in accordance with the aim one proposes in the circumstances in which one finds oneself. The individual should then no longer withdraw into solitude, for inner invention is less abundant and more limited than reality. The presence of the world and of society is not an entertaining diversion, but the occasion of experience, which provides a matter to our mind's activity of elaboration. The indefinite possibility of this progressive labor ensures a dynamic unity for the individual being. The encyclopedic nature of reflection manifests as a presence of the individual to the whole richness of this experience. The individual's connection to the whole is this manufacturing activity of the individual. Quote, philosophy is no longer the science of a man who meditates with eyes closed. It values all the arts. In order for this constructive method to be valid and fruitful everywhere, it suffices to be able to establish between signs and ideas a correspondence as rigorous as that which mathematics realizes, in such a way that every word is determined there in a fixed and invariable manner. The deductive synthesis is a fruitless method and a teacher of errors. Only analysis is valid. The vices of the great systems are understood in this way, as the treatise on systems reveals. Thanks to this method of construction, an individual who would have nothing but a single sense would possess an understanding with as many faculties as with five altogether. It is the statue of the treatise on the sensations that shows this independence of the five senses with respect to one another. It is quite similar to the man of the essay on the origin of human knowledge, who in a state of spiritual innocence, sheltered from prejudices and traditions, would be created by God with organs so well-developed that from the very first moments he would have a perfect use of reason. This individual in the state of nature would perfectly realize within himself a perfect constructive genesis of thought without any preliminary system. The treatise on the sensations only goes further than the essay by striving to show that all mental faculties are anterior to the use of signs. The art of signs only teaches to, quote, take the light further. Therefore, from the very beginning, the individual would possess these mental faculties, those that seem to be superior to this primitive stage, for example, to the primitive capacity independent of any sign to know how to count to three, 
are, quote, only these same faculties which applying to a large number of objects develop further. The role of science makes it possible for the individual to operate this extension. Right. So um, Contillac was a, an empiricist philosopher. Um, it's interesting also, just sort of in passing, that uh, Simonon doesn't actually mention Locke uh, in, or doesn't have a section on Locke in this text um, because Contillac is definitely uh, influenced by Locke. Um, but um, maybe that's just sort of the French bias uh, from Simondon. Um, but um, yeah, so Contillac, um, the bit about the, the statue, I think I mentioned this before, but um, so in the treatise on the sensations, Contillac does a sort of thought experiment of um, uh, you, you start with a statue and then you um, give the statue um, various senses one at a time and you, you sort of analyze um, what kinds of thoughts um, this statue would be capable of uh, on the basis of having one sense or all five senses or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so um, Contiac tries to um, show that you can develop the, all, all of the concepts or all of the th thoughts that um, a human being is capable of on the basis of just having one sense. Uh, and um, so the, uh, you don't need to have multiple senses. You can you can just have one sense, and uh, on that basis, you can form complex ideas in the same way as a human being does. Um, what else did I want to mention? Oh yes, that last bit. Um, it's interesting here. What the last sort of parenthetical comment about uh, being able to count to three. Um, I, I don't know exactly what that refers to in Kondiak, um, but it's interesting because. Um, uh, I've, I've recently been reading some stuff about psychology of mathematics, and um, it turns out that humans um, have a capacity to uh, observe, to recognize the number of objects precisely for groups of three or less. So you can uh, look at you can you can uh, look at a um, a picture of two dots, for example, and you can immediately see that there are two. Or three dots, or or one dot. Um, you don't have to like sort of sit there and count them. But once you get to four, five, etc. dots, then you have to actually count how many there are, as opposed to um, just immediately seeing the number. Um, so I guess Konziak, um sort of had an awareness of this, or or happens to um, come across this notion. Um, obviously, well before there were any sort of systematic uh, psychological experiments showing this, but uh, it's interesting that he um, sort of happened across something that uh, contemporary psychology of mathematics uh, shows to be to be valid. I'm I'm glad you mentioned Locke because uh, not only was I just reading Locke yesterday and giving myself a headache about Locke, but also when I was reading this passage, that's the first thing that I thought of was Locke as well. Yeah, there like all of. Uh, 18th century um, sort of uh, Enlightenment philosophy definitely has, um, uh, you know, a, a certain um, influence from Locke. Um, and like what what a lot of the authors um, draw from Locke is this idea of um, uh, testing idea, testing um, complex ideas by sort of drawing drawing them back or or retracing their genesis from simple ideas. Um, and there's often a sort of um, uh, reductive argument in the sense that they they want to say that you know this idea um, so like some of the um, uh, anti-religious writers that um, that come up later on will say that our idea of God for example is um, is a sort of empty 
uh, idea because we we can't sort of um, trace it back to any set of simple ideas or um, um, we can't sort of uh, analyze it in terms of a, uh, a a genesis from experience in the way that we can for other concepts that are that they take to be more valid. Um, so there, there's again this sort of critical or destructive impulse to um, the use of empiricism or or the empirical tradition in the 18th century, um, which certainly was not the way that Locke uh, understood it. Um, uh, he obviously did not intend to sort of overthrow the existing social order, um, but uh, that's, that's I think, the use that um, is made of Locke's work in the 18th century. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next couple of short sections. Um, let's see. Yeah, we can read probably, um, uh, yeah, Bonnet and Hartley, um, and then probably stop there. Uh, so yeah, I'll read from here. Uh, next couple of sections. Okay, Charles Bonnet. This same hypothesis of the statue with its signification relative to individuality is found in Charles Bonnet. It is worth noting that for Bonnet, there is a distinction between sensation, properly speaking, and activity. The preference that the statue gives to the sensation that is most pleasing to it is an action that the statue exerts on this sen sensation. To prefer is not to act. It is to be determined and to act. Attention is a faculty distinct from sensation. Direct internal observation also possesses an undeniable validity, as the ideology of Destitut de Cassi and Men de Biran will show. David Hartley, one of the authors who has best revealed this search for the individual as an operator of information, the creator of his own structures based on this activity, is David Hartley. The as yet superficial study of his thought reveals a very remarkable faculty of discovery in this man who wanted to extend Newton's discovery into physiology by explaining the connection of ideas through the universality of a dynamic schema, psychophysiological origin. Ideas are linked together by the same process as the one that links in the brain small vibrations retaining the tendency to be reproduced in the same order as the vibrations originally produced by the senses. One hypothesis of Newton's optics attributed the production of sensations to the vibrations of an ether contained in the sensory organs, the nerves, and the brain. In this sense, the individual is the center of an autonomous but non-arbitrary activity that connects sensation to a psychophysiological activity and connects abstract thought to sensation. This is not an empiricism here, properly speaking, since the unity and identity of the dynamic schema ensure a transition from the world to the subject, who posits in an extremely new way the rapport of the particular being to the universe. The individual is no longer isolated in a substantial aseity beyond which a contemplative knowledge would attain a participation in total reality. The contact between the universe and a particular being occurs according to a modality, which is neither a modality of activity nor of passivity, but of communication. This thesis is new. It safeguards the particularity of the subject without locking him into himself. It in fact defines the individual being as one in whom and through whom an operation of relation is effectuated. It is the operation of the individual that is an operation of relation. The individual is not substantially isolated from the world. He is inscribed in the world through an operation that distinguishes him not as a complete being in its aseity, but as the author being of an operation of relation. Individuality is the structural identity of this operation repeated on different levels. The psychophysiological relation, the relation of sensation and of abstract thought, then becomes not the problems but the expressions of this reality that the individual is, an active reality of relating. The still quite imperfect state of physiological knowledge in Hartley's time did not allow this author to pursue his research into the details of psychophysiological organization, but the, his hypothesis conserves an important meaning as a representation of the individual's reality. Um, there's one small point of, um, well, yeah, so editing, I guess, uh, more than anything else. Um, so 
where it says in the, the section on Bonnet, where it says uh, right at the bottom of 612 to the beginning of 613, it is to be determined and to act. I think that that should be, it is to be determined to act. So the the thought here, as far as I can tell, is that um, the statue preferring one sensation over the other or directing its attention to one sensation over the other is a kind of action, even if it's an internal action, it's, it doesn't um, sort of uh, have any... Uh, realization in the external world, um, the this preference for one sensation over another is a kind of action. So I think um, I think that's the meaning. Uh, but the the translation follows the French text. But I think I think there's an error there. Whether it's um, Simondon uh, just made an error in writing, or the editors made an error in transcribing, or I'm not sure exactly what what happened. Uh, but yeah, I think it makes more sense if we read it that way. Um, yeah, and this passage on on Hartley, I think, is interesting. Um, Hartley is someone that I have like only the vaguest knowledge of, um, like more or less that he existed is, is about all I know. Um, but uh, um, Simon Dahl seems to uh, have a, a pretty positive um, evaluation of Hartley's work, even even though obviously a lot of the physiological um, ideas that he's developing uh, turned out to be, you know, incorrect uh, or you know that. They, they weren't retained by later physiology. Um, I think this idea of um, um, a kind of uh, unity of the, the subject in, in the world um, um, through this psychophysiological activity, I think this is something that Simon Don sees as a, a kind of um, uh, uh, a good idea that was not really realizable at the time that, that Hartley is writing um, when, you know, physiology of the, ner- the nervous system was basically just a, a supposition that there's something in the nerves that um, that sort of transmits signals in some way. Um, so there there wasn't a lot of uh, knowledge about the actual functioning of the nervous system, and it was all sort of supposition at that at that point. Um, and and so he he the way he depicts Hartley here, and that, again I don't know how accurate this is in, in terms of uh, you know representation of Hartley's work itself. Uh, but the way he depicts it here is that um, the individual for Hartley is um, only only has a sort of relative separation from the world, or is only relatively um, individuated. Uh, and this, of course, aligns well with Simondon's account of individuation, where the individual human being is is only um, uh, sort of partly individuated and always retains some sort of uh, pre-individual uh, charge within within itself. Uh, and so Simondon is here attributing to Hartley a conception fairly close to his own one, which, um, um, again, I don't know how accurate that is, but it's interesting that he um, finds this sort of anticipation of his own ideas in um, this 18th century writer that he, as he mentions here, is uh, not really very well known or, or studied. Uh, I have a question about the Hartley part. Um, there is a sentence like... Um kind of long sentence, I can't find the, the beginning. Maybe if you can find it, this, this is a new blah, 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 going down, and then you can find the end of that sentence, you can see the individually really is the structural identity of this operation repeated on different levels. Right, yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah. So I think this part is interesting because like, it, it kind of like uh, shows what Hartley thought about the individuality like that. And then my question is that here, on different levels, in what different levels uh, is that like a, the kind type of like a type of a contextual 
or differences or what kind of different levels here or uh, intensity of the process operation what, what do you have any idea about that yeah that's that's um hard to say because um i i don't really know hartley's work what i don't know what exactly the different levels are here but um i think we can uh sort of connect this with simon don's general um, account of individuation as proceeding through different levels you know physical vital psychical and and collective levels of individuation um and simon Do seems to be attributing a, a similar doctrine to hartley um so there would be, you know, one form of individuation of uh, uh, as a living being, and then a, a sort of um, superposed level of individuation as a psychical being. Um, and um, yeah, so I think I think that's what Simondon is attributing to Hartley. And again, I don't know how accurate that is um, as a representation of Hartley's thought, um, but uh, that's how I understand this passage that you um, pointed to. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. I think it makes sense. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the bit on Hume. And we can read Volvnaut as well, because it's just one paragraph. So uh, someone else would like to read those two sections. Uh, I can read. Um, Hume. The dynamism of the individual is revealed in the philosophical method of Hume, who considers philosophical thought to be a strictly unconditional activity. Quote, when an opinion leads to absurdities, it is certainly false, but it may not be certain that an opinion is false due to the fact that its consequence is dangerous, unquote. Metaphysical studies do not have to justify themselves through their utility and attractiveness. Quote, and though these researches may appear painful and fatiguing, it is with some minds as with some bodies, which being endowed with vigorous and florid health require severe exercise and reap a pleasure from what, to the generality of mankind, may seem burdensome and laborious, unquote. Philosophy, is thus, philosophy thus becomes a critique that begins with man's appreciations and beliefs to seek out their principle through analysis and induction. Nevertheless, it may be said that this unconditional activity at least acknowledges a limit beyond which it cannot reach. The individual himself, insofar as he possesses the principle by which he evaluates, in the same way, and in the relation of the individual to the external world through sensation, Hume accepts the individual as a limit because he takes an impression for absolute and does not seek to go further than it. The associative relations between ideas do not require a physiological explanation, contrary to the intention of the Cartesians and Malbranche in particular. In the mind, order is maintained through the law of association, just as order in the universe is maintained by Newton's law. However, within the individual, the important point is the activity of thought. For example, error is explained by a confusion between ideas which occurs when, quote, the actions of the mind through which we consider them are not that different, unquote. This activity is completed through habit, which founds spontaneous belief and characterizes the imagination. And yet this doctrine, which places so much importance on the activity of the individual, cannot, due to its method, lead to a knowledge of this individual reality. The belief in the identity of the self as a permanent reality superior to the changing unfolding of impressions and ideas is unfounded. The notion of the identity of the self is no more concrete than that of the identity of external bodies. It is the imagination that creates the fiction of this permanence. Hume nonetheless states in the appendix to a treatise of human, of human nature that this explanation is unsatisfying, that he doesn't know how, quote, our successive perceptions unite in our thought or consciousness, unquote. 
In ethics, the individual remains the center of relations and not isolated substance. Hume condemns Diogenes' crazed individualism or Pascal's isolation, in which he sees, quote, religious superstition or philosophical delirium, unquote. Bovenard. In turning to the work of Bovenard, Bovenard, we can begin to see a difficulty of attempting to define the individual within his limits. Bovenard gains an insight into the existence of an ideal of power, as much for intellectual life as for moral life. We are our passions, quote, which are not distinct from our being, unquote. The origin of our passions lie, lies in the, quote, feeling of power, unquote, which we want to increase, and in the feeling of, quote, smallness and subjection, unquote, which we want to inhibit. Our freedom consists only in the determination of our acts by our thoughts and our feelings, i.e. by ourselves. Quote, it would be madness to distinguish one's feelings from oneself, unquote. Passion surpasses the limits of the individual. As soon as it is strong, it leaves aside our possessions and our well-being. Uh, the amour propre, defined by La Rochefoucauld, is opposed to self-love which seeks its happiness outside itself in the exercise of the passions that reveal, quote, the insufficiency of our being, unquote. In this sense, <clears throat> greed is, quote, the desirous instinct that calls on us to increase, to support, to strengthen our being, unquote. The love of glory, one of the strongest stimulants for great souls, gives us a natural authority over hearts and minds and incites us to work. From this notion, we can see how a certain definition of a man's worth or value arose, which is distinct from mere moral qualities, and which is formed by the potentials contained within the individual, thereby leading him to act beyond himself. The genius and heroism that characterize the human being considering concerning what is most elevated in him are the faculty of surpassing vulgar contradictions and inventing a solution to the most difficult problems, according to an act of absolute independence. For the hero, the rule is fidelity to oneself and to one's dominant passion. According to Bovenard, quote, everything that has some being has some order, unquote. It seems like he's saying in Hume, in, in a sense, the individual is absolute because there's nothing but the association of ideas. But in another sense, it's limited because, you know, we can't really posit a any kind of like absolutely substantial or necessary individual that has these ideas precisely because we only have this association of ideas to to start with and to build things from yeah i think that's right um so with hume there's always um there's sort of his conclusions of of his reasoning the which tend to be skeptical where he suggests for example that we have no uh notion of uh, real causation of you know one um, object bringing about um, or, or one uh, event bringing about another event or one property of one object being being the cause of the property of another object um, we have no idea of this notion um, but then he he always has uh, the what he calls practice um, the you know we can we can form these skeptical conclusions when we're sitting in our office writing uh, philosophy but then as soon as we you know, step outside to, um, I don't get something to eat or, or, you know, go, go visit a friend or whatever, anything practical, we immediately have to rely on these notions that we, um, a minute before sort of denied the validity of, um, and, uh, so for Hume, these two, as the individual has a different status in these two different sort of domains or different approaches. Um, 
So in in the philosophy, in the sort of systematic um, uh, self-understanding that Hume presents, uh, we have no idea of the the self as a, a subsisting entity. Um, we we only have we're only aware of ideas and impressions, and uh, they just have uh, association through habit um, um, in in various ways, uh, and they so they are connected to each other. Uh, through these laws of association, um, but we we don't have any sort of idea of a, a self that underlies or um, unites these ideas, um, because precisely if we had an idea of it, we would only have this idea of the self and not uh, the self itself, I guess. Um, and uh, but then outside of the domain of um, sort of systematic philosophy of mind or or systematic philosophy in general. When Hume writes about uh, politics or history, you know, he, he wrote um, quite a lot on those topics uh, outside of, you know, philosophical writing. Um, he treats the individual as um, a sort of uh, uh, absolute, uh, as Simon Don puts it here. So he, he bases all of those um, political and historical writings on the notion of, of an individual as something um, sort of self-contained and, and given. Uh, so there's this sort of dual status of the individual for Hume, depending on whether he's in the realm of systematic philosophy or he's in the realm of practice. Um, I I put in the chat the link to uh, the Wikipedia page for Bovnark because um, I only know of him through having read this Simon Don text. Um, I, I don't know his work at all. Um, and uh, yeah, so he... he seems to belong to this uh, sort of aphoristic tradition in French writing. Um, this uh, uh, people like La Rochefoucauld or, um, um, yeah, the, they, they sort of write these aphorisms about society and about the nature of the human being and so on um, um, and uh, tend to be sort of critical um, in nature. Um, but, um, yeah, that's that's sort of yeah, and, and sixty one has posted a, an example of uh, of one of these um, uh, aphorisms from Wolfnach. Um So yeah, they, they tend to try to um, exp- explain human action in terms of um, the interactions of passions of various kinds. Uh, and so here we have uh, self love as a kind of passion, and uh, you know the the sort of um, uh, effects of this passion in on human behavior um and and so these are the sort of exercises that these french aphoristic writers um sort of undertake is is to analyze human behavior in terms of these passions that motivate it um okay so let's uh, actually uh, we should have um read the Diderot section i think um yeah so let's read um about a page because the so there's a Diderot one paragraph and then there's um a couple pages on what he calls here philosophy of nature. Um, so let's read like a page worth of those two sections. If uh, someone else would like to read. Uh, before before going going forward, can I ask a question about Hume the last part? Yeah, of course. Because uh, c- c- like um, uh, particularly focused on the last sentence, Hume condemned the Diogenes as created the individualism, Pascal's isolation, and all that. So what Hume believed that. Um, this kind of episode just represents like uh, one one habit of an individual, not the um, the not the uh, um, that 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 cannot represents like the human being's individuality or something like that. So um, Hume just uh, tried to uh, focus on like the 
particular action is to action is that it doesn't mean like anything regarding to regarding regarding um individuality or something like that that's the point um i think the point here is that um um the individual for hume is always um thought of in relation to other individuals um so even though hume uh bases so in his sort of practical side he um his thought is centered around the individual he always thinks of that individual in relation to other individuals um and and not uh so he he doesn't sort of valorize the isolation of the individual in the way that pascal does um he he doesn't treat the individual in isolation from its social surroundings uh, he always thinks of the individual as as in relation to other individuals and um um and so that's what his sort of ethical or pra- practical philosophy is is sort of built around all right right so okay the last part like uh, explained that way like that that's perfect and then the whole idea of hume is like then still like a hume believes that uh the um, human human beings like uh, the how do I say like uh, as it is stated it's a center of relations which means like uh, through the relations like uh, each individual can develop like some kind of individuality so what I'm asking is that human Hume um, believes like uh, the independent individuality like uh, of course like uh, what he as you said like it must be um, based on like the relationship um, between human each human being but the at the end of the day, uh, what uh, Hume believes also like uh, the existence of individuality as well. Yeah, so this is um, the sort of contradiction between his, um, I guess, speculative conclusions or the systematic conclusions. So when he when he tries to analyze our our concept of individuality, he argues that we we don't we don't have any um, um, real idea of of the the self underlying. Um, the ideas and impressions that make up the mind, um, and so he denies that we have a, a true concept of of the self or of the the individual. Um, but then, when he turns to practical topics, he um, sort of accepts the common sense assumption of uh, some sort of um, uh, individuality uh, as um, distinct from just the association of ideas, and and so he he sort of keeps both of these. Um, understandings of the individual in play, depending on which uh, domain he's writing in at, at a given time. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me read the do 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 part. If you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, we see the emergence of different conception of individuality, albeit one based on the same inspiration with Diderot, who, by uh, way of uh, physiological and biological reasoning, show that individuality is not an ultimate or absolute reality. The survival of certain organs detached from the body, like the heart of a frog, gave rise to the development of new theses. The Montpellier school, whose conclusions did the whole accept, sees in the animal an aggregate of uh, animal animalcules, which, when joined with one another, become the organs of the whole. There is no other unity in the whole than this unity of aggregation that incessantly varies and transforms without there ever being a veritable death. Continue or stop here? Uh, yeah, you can continue uh, for about a page. Okay, philosophies of nature. The philosophy of nature that is revealed in various ways in the, in the 18th century brings about both an expansion and an abandonment of the limits of the individual being. 
Sometimes the individual being is connected to a natural world with which it is contempt contemporaneous, and sometimes it is presented as a result of a long evolution. It is the object that the individual knows himself and contemplates himself or feels himself like it just becomes the causes that surpass him. The of, uh, philosophy of the Ofkularu also attempted to provide man with awareness of himself, but it did, not, it did so by showing him the objects that he elaborate and that constitute his own civilization. This closed domain of progressive and optimistic humanism does not concern itself with the nat natural objects, but only with the object elaborated and completely created by man, that which has human utility. It concerns itself with the institutions in patri uh, particular and considers the whole content of morals, customs, religions, language as something institutional, both annexed to the human domain, or that is human, and to be given the right to con continue the work undertaken by past generations. What has been made by men can be unmade to be remade better. The humanism of the 18th century utilizes a doctrine of universal artificialism as an instrument. The individual being then appears essentially as the inventor, the inventor or reformer, one who increases this human domain of man manufactured or instituted things, or repairs it and improves it by replacing old institutions with new ones. Conversely, the philosopher of nature cannot limit the human individual to this voluntary and conscious task that is completely oriented toward the purely human domain. Connects the individual back to a society that is not a pure institutional work but has something natural about it. Moreover, uh, human society is profoundly community, a community, and the origins of human rights are found in this de facto set of the human community, which does not proceed from itself but originated with a cosmic becoming according to supernatural intention. Even within what seems purely institutional, the artificial has little place. Languages of, of divine or natural origin, but it does not reject from a convention. Man is an individual as a constitutive unit when he is a member of a uh, contractual society instituted by man. But he is an integral part, vaster, more connected, less precise in his limits when he is a member of uh, the facto community, since the fact is the source of right because the fact is natural. The individual then becomes nothing than everything. Nothing by himself in his isolation and everything through universal particip participation, which gives him an intuitive awareness of the world and the uh, destinies of humanity in the world. His nature is at the same time a supernatural nature, for it surpasses itself in itself. And the individual is, uh, is these two things at the same time, because he is a simple unit and a being who uh, participates. The traditions of uh, Neoplatonism and the Christ Christian Mysticism become uh, mixed with a certain influences that perhaps need to be connected back to the cult of Mithras by way of long elaboration of initiatory, initiatory sects. In the cult of Mithras, individual being is formed by sunlight, the first reality. Upon its death, the individual being dissolves again, progressively disappears into its elements. These elements are absorbed by the sun, back to which they ascend by following its race. Here, the relation between the, the animated principle of beings and each individual being is a direct material and spiritual relation. In Platonism, this is a relation of uh, egoemplarism. 
which is also direct, but without the exchange of matter. Both traditions and both uh, conceptions seem to coincide in Germany initiatory philosophy and seem to be animated by the inspiration coming from Christian mysticism. This philosophy of the object is therefore profoundly different from that of the humanities of Ofklarung, the object in the presence of which the individual knows himself and becomes himself is something that emanates from nature. It's a reality and simple qua reality in the ancient sense of the term. The symbol as a reality separated from another reality with which it constituted the original whole and in which it enjoyed its true nature. This fragment reality isolated from the other constituted with its twin a couple of symbola being which as they come together Symbolo coincide by redirecting the original being like the like the two halves of broken amphora. The individual is conceived as a symbol, i.e. a being which, quite far from having its whole capacity of existence within it, is not is not completely given to itself and fills a kesra, a void, a lack, which is the result of this separation and the sign of the absence of the other symbol. The individual's complement with respect the, uh, to the absolute. Symbolism is a philosophical a mystical, mystical, mystical conception of the individual world before being a poetic doctrine. The search for the individual's complement, after which the self discovers that it's incomplete and frustrated, leads to a bringing a quite particular attention to science. Science becomes the indices that permit a particular being to rediscover. Uh, it's a complementary symbol in the form to attain absolute unity. The veritable individuality does not possess in this existence because it has been paradoxically divided and separated from itself and is nothing more than half of itself. The feeling of incompleteness becomes an instrument of discovery, the first step in the uh, metaphysical uh, assess, ascension and uh, the migration toward the being's unity. This metaphysical symbolism finds an expression in French Romanticism a century later, particularly with uh, uh, Lamartin, well, he expresses himself through an inspired Platonism, Platonism in search of the soul system. We find the metaphysical feeling of incompleteness in Chateaubriand, well, he expresses himself in a reverie in search of the uh, slight bit, more so than in an ideal alum with the beginning Reflection postulated this complementary being and the veritable individual is a, a couple. Since Eva is at the same time the double, the sister, the and the wife, and she is also the and the world itself. Quotes. You push man by by the arm, he gets up armed, end of quotes. But it is undoubtedly with the jihad Nehval that the conception of the individuality is more clearly inspired by an in, in, initiatory philosophy of the symbol. Throughout his wife, Jihad Nakhbar, always searching for the complementary being. Within the unity of this complementary being fused and merged, the image of the mother puts, lost in the cold mist of the north, end of quotes. The image of Adrien, the descendant of the Valois, the image of Ohalia, who magically goes up to the image of, image of, uh, limits of the world, the image of the young girls, the daughters of fire, whom Jihad Nakhbar, tries to desperately to identify their images with one another, and ultimately the image of the Virgin Mary and the, the saint, or the priest, priest, priestess, and the witch, and finally the fairy. 
This complementary being is one and multiple according to singular circular tree that makes it such that the images replace the one another through a continual substitution that is only possible due to a basic identity. Quotes. The third returns. It teaches still the first. End of quotes. In this alternating and recurrent image animated by the continual rhythm, quotes, like the alternately, alternatively white and pink star of Aldebaran'su constellation, End of quotes. The opposite aspects fused together. Quotes. The size of the saint, saint, whatever. The crisis of the fairy. End of quotes. The search for the complementary being is expressed in life by a will to return to the origin of the things, the origin of a being, to the locals, the oldest civilization, the place from whence the, the day comes. And is a madness. Travel towards the Orient. In the 18th century, the main precursors of this metaphysical symbolism of France are Cretif de la Bretonne, Bretonne and the Senaguho, who are themselves preceded by Diderot. Right, thanks. Um, yeah, that was a, a long section. Um, uh, I thought we were going to split that up into separate parts, but um, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, so here we have, um, so we had this, there's a sort of strange... Um, division in the way that Simondon uh, talks about Diderot. So he, he has one little paragraph that we just read, and then he has this long section on the philosophy of what he calls the philosophy of nature. Um, and then he has another section on materialism where he talks about Diderot, <coughs> Diderot again. Um, so um, I won't go into the Diderot section. Um, so um, we'll, we can look at the... Um, the bit about the what he calls the philosophy of nature, um, and it's not 100% clear to me who exactly he has in mind when he talks about philosophy of nature, um, because normally when we talk about philosophy of nature, where he um, normally that, that term is used to refer to um, the work of Schelling and people associated with him uh, a little bit later at the end of the uh, 18th and beginning of the 19th century, um, but here he's referring to um, People from the um, from the 18th century. Um, I one guess of who we might be thinking of is Herda. Um, so he had uh, a kind of evolutionary philosophy um, of the natural world. He he has um, um, I forget the exact title, but he has a book um, Ideas Towards the History of Man. I think is the 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 title. Um, um, it's a book that sort of starts with the formation of the solar system and, and of the earth, and then proceeds to show how human being uh, arises in this evolutionary progression. Um, and um, yeah, so here Simondon sees um, the particularity of this philosophy of nature as um, being this sort of integration of the human being into the natural world. So the, the human being is... Um, uh, has its reality outside of itself in that sense. Uh, so it, it's the human individual is not a complete being that uh, has its own reality within itself. It, it always sort of points to something beyond itself. Uh, and then he he brings up again his his sort of favorite notion of the the symbol as this um, reality that is uh, split or separated, uh, so that one half um, sort of uh, points towards its completion and the other half. Uh, and so he takes it that uh, for this philosophy of nature, um, 
the the human being is a symbol in the sense that it sort of points beyond itself to something uh, outside of itself. Uh, and then there's this very strange suggestion here that we have to um, read this philosophy of nature or understand this philosophy of nature as um, a sort of continuation of the cult of Mithras. Um, and so Mithras was, um, uh, the, the Mithras cult was a, a sort of um, religious uh, school in the late Roman Empire. Um, I think it has um, Asian origins, if I remember correctly, but uh, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of cult of the sun. Um, and uh, um, it was a, an initiatory sect. So um, you had to be initiated into this um, into this uh, tradition before you could learn about its doctrines and uh, and practices and so on. Um, why exactly Simondon brings this up is not entirely clear. But he he reads um, what he's calling here philosophy of nature as a kind of uh, initiatory uh, philosophy, uh, and he connects it. So probably a more um, uh, historically tenable connection is the, the connection with Christian mysticism. Uh, so people like um, Böhme, for example, um, had a an important influence on um, uh, 18th century and um, 19th century German philosophy. Uh, so. Christian mysticism uh, was definitely uh, an important influence, uh, even on like people like Hegel, who um, you know tries to. He's a definitely a rationalist. Um, he he uh, you know tries to develop a rationalism that can account for um, um, some of the ideas of uh, mystical Christian philosophy in in the form of Dürme. Um And uh, what else do we have here? Uh, yeah, and then we have again this. Sort of strange anticipation where Simondon skips ahead to French Romanticism, which only really developed in the 19th century. Um, and so he talks about um, some of these French writers, and especially Gérard de Nerval, um, who have this um, sort of romantic um, conception of the search for the missing uh, reality. So the the individual is is sort of always uh, longing for this. Um, complementary reality that would uh, sort of complete the, the, the individual. Uh, and uh, there's various forms that this takes in uh, Gérard de Nerva's work, um, whether it's the, the mother or the, um, the, uh, the, the saint or the fairy or all these different sort of images that are used to depict this missing reality. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know exactly why Simon Dome sort of, with the text in this order, um, it's this whole passage is pretty strange, I think, in terms of like the things it connects and where why it appears at this point in the text and so on. Right, yes, the famous uh, pet lobster um, that uh, Gérard de Nerval had. It's just like, um, just a guess is that like, the uh, philosophy of nature, this century is the century of uh, Charles Darwin, and then in terms of natural sciences, the uh, evolution theory comes came out around this time? Uh, yes. Um, so towards the end of the 18th century is when we first see um, evolutionary theories appear. So Lamarck is, uh, uh, I think his um, Philosophie Zoologique comes out in 1800, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, so he has a, an evolutionary theory that is um, built around the notion of effort. Um, so living beings make, a, make efforts of various kinds uh, and and the whole sort of structure of 
um, the the natural world is defined in terms of this sort of um, effort of nature to produce these these living beings, and uh, and then the the sort of famous part that gets retained from Lamarck is his idea of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So he thinks that um, the efforts that a, a particular being uh, make in its lifetime will be inherited by its offspring, and um, um, and then those offspring will have characteristics that are determined by the effort of the um, of the ancestor. And so, like the the stock example that's always used is um, the sort of proto giraffe or the ancestor of a giraffe um, was constantly making an effort to reach the highest branches of the tree. Um, and um, its offspring inherited a longer neck, and uh, and you know this process continues over centuries until you end up with a giraffe with a long neck. Um, so this this is um, one of the evolutionary theories that was around um, uh, in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, um, and uh, also Charles Darwin's uh, grandfather, I believe, Erasmus Darwin, um, was writing, I think, in the at the end of the 18th century, um, he has a, a long poem, um, what's it called, Zoonomia or something like that. Um, 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 and uh, in this poem, he gives a, um, uh, yeah, Zoonomia, that's right. Um, um, so he, he gives a, um, yeah, 1794 to 1796 is when it was published. Um, and he gives a, a sort of evolutionary account of the development of um, of animal forms, uh, um, but uh, he doesn't give the sort of Darwinian mechanism of um, uh, of natural selection in that text. Um, but yes, there were definitely evolutionary ideas that were sort of in the air at this time. Uh, the reason I, uh, I just like uh, refer to the evolution is, is like, I'm wondering like that has to do with the, um, the limits of, I mean, the awareness like the, uh, his or her own like a limit as a human being. And at the same time, like um, the um, kind of like a, a limitless, like a part, part possibility of evolution. Uh, what I'm what I'm thinking is like maybe like this time would be the kind of boundary between in between like the two different contradictory ideas. Uh, so like I try to find like what really uh, what should be really true, like in terms of like ontological question. Uh, Regarding that issue, like the cult of a Mithra, in a way, um, this kind of like a circulation, like uh, human beings are from the sun and then going back to the, the, the sun again, but uh, that kind of a, a cycle, uh, human being at the moment could be a, a limit, to, has limits like uh, in terms of existence, but the, uh, the, that kind of circulation is like uh, the... Um, the idea the human being as a collective uh, concept it goes on and on like a continuity uh, so it's kind of like a, a beyond like a, the limits of human being something like that uh, it's just like a just like a pure the genuine guess like it's the, I'm not sure like whether it could be true or not but the, um, I just guess that way what do you think yeah I think um, there's so there's a, a few different things that come to mind here um, is so this conception of the individual as a symbol in the, the sense that Simon Don uses it, so as a, as a partial reality that points beyond itself, um, I think we can, you know, you, you can have different conceptions of what that, um, what the other half of the symbol would be. Uh, so in, in Gérard de Nerval, 
it's uh, it's always a, another person. So it's the mother or the uh, the saint or or whatever other figure. Um, it's always this other person who is uh, the other half of the symbol. Uh, but you could also have a an understanding of the symbolic nature of the of the human being that would point towards, um, uh, I guess, something um, like a, a collective in Simondon's sense of the term, so that um, the human being would be incomplete as a, an isolated individual and would always point beyond itself to the collective. Uh, and I think that's um, Simondon's conception is something along those lines. Uh, and so um, the this conception of the human being as a symbol is, uh, is a sort of open one. It allows for, I think, multiple uh, different ways of, of manifesting itself. Mm. But then what do you think about the uh, signs? Like uh, in the middle of the the, the, the text, like uh, there, there comes the signs again. Actually, it was discussed the, the previous like a part, the role of uh, signs, like uh, how it contributes to the, uh, how does it bring individuality or whatever. It comes again here. Like, yeah, like so the... Sorry. Um, yeah, the, the signs here, um, I think we can understand. So the way Simondon depicts them here is um, the role of signs in romanticism in, in people like Gérard de Nerval is um, to, to um, sort of point towards the uh, lost reality or the, the complementary symbol, uh, the, other half, the other half of the reality that um, makes up the individual. Um, so the sign is always um, uh, something that points towards that lost reality. Um, um, and so I think, yeah, I think the sign here is always understood in that sense. Um, I don't think he's thinking of like linguistic signs um, in, I, I guess, a sort of structuralist sense. Thank you. Um, okay, so I think maybe we can end here since we're getting close to time and the next section is... Uh, uh, well, it's not that long, but anyway, we, we can end here and pick up the naturalism section next time. So we'll see. Um, he's going to come back to Diderot a little bit, and um, and then he's going to talk about Dolbach and Elbesius. Um, so yeah, we'll see um, some of the pretty interesting um, French materialists of the 18th century uh, that, uh, um, yeah, I don't think get a lot of attention, but they... Uh, they're, they have some interesting points that uh, are worth are worth reading. I think. Sure. All right. So that thanks everyone good to me. For, for coming out, and uh, hope to see you next week.